You're listening to Matters of Engagement, a podcast examining issues at the intersection of health, healthcare, and society. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. It can be really valuable when people can come together to hear a range of ideas and presentations, see what work is being done, and get a sense of where things are heading. Conferences are great for that. So we wanted to bring some conference vibes to the podcast and share some recent presentations and conversations that take an unflinchingly critical look at public engagement. The discussions we're bringing forward in this episode are related to health policy, but we could see parallels across all areas of engagement in healthcare, including research and service improvement. We're going to share some of the ongoing work from team members of the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project, followed by a conversation we had with Katie Booth and Alana Catapan. We'll introduce them again later. They're academics deeply interested in both research about engagement and also the work of engagement. You know, we should clarify something here. We describe many of our episodes as conversations, but the truth is we do a lot of editing and rearranging. They're not actually true conversations. (laughs) No, that's right. We have the advantage of being able to script and edit ourselves in every episode. And we have total control over how we sound. But this time, we're including pieces of our actual recorded discussion. It's like those lunchtime conversations at a conference with people you really connect with. You get to think through the themes and hear how other people make connections. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we really hope you enjoy listening in. Okay, but first... We'll share the work of the panelists who gave presentations at a conference we attended back in September. It was organized by the Engagement in Health Policy Project at McMaster. The theme was Reimagining Public Engagement in a Changing World. We already shared the keynote from Jamila Mishner in the last episode. The three presentations we're about to share are from researchers on that project team. And shout out to McMaster, thank you for providing the audio. Each segment is less than five minutes, and so obviously doesn't cover their entire presentation. We'll put links in the show notes to everything in full. We'll briefly describe each project, and the presenters describe their findings or reflections. First up, we will hear a short piece from a presentation by Alpha Abeba and Rhonda C. George titled, If We Don't Do It, Who Will? An Exploration of Black Community Agency in Health Policy and Advocacy in Ontario. Alpha is an assistant professor at McMaster University, and Rhonda is a PhD candidate at York University. You might recall our conversations with Alpha and Rhonda in previous episodes. This presentation builds on that work, so if you haven't already listened to those episodes, we really recommend that you do. There's links in the show notes. In this excerpt, Rhonda shares their critical reflections developed after many conversations with Black leaders of Black community organizations who discussed their experiences of health policy engagement. Which included when and how they were engaging with policymakers, why they weren't if they weren't, and what those experiences looked like. So here's Rhonda, sharing insights on the challenges and barriers of participating in formal engagement processes as experienced by leaders of Black-led organizations. So some of the challenges and barriers, so when these community members actually try to engage within, you know, formal engagement processes, here are some of the key things that occurred. So first, epistemic invalidation. 
um, there's a way in which they would always be put in a position where they would have to prove that anti-Black racism was indeed an urgent marginalizing factor and that these were pertinent issues that needed to be addressed. And so there was a type of invalidation of their lived experience and the knowledge that they've acquired about this issue and their expertise. Um, and so many times when they would get into these spaces, they would have to start at Racism 101. This was also compounded by uh, what we term, I guess, whataboutism. And so when maybe they would win that argument, let's say. But then afterwards it becomes, well, what about X community? What about Y community? And so that was a, a, a quite a challenge to get them to say, hey, this is something very specific, rooted in an intergenerational issue. Um, and so we need to address this head on. There was also chronic and inconsistent uh, underfunding. And so even if they were able to acquire funds for the kinds of uh, systemic changes that were needed, and because this is an intergenerational systemic problem that touches on, you know, many different, many of the social determinants of health, rather, um, the funding they would get would be for six months, one year, one and a half years, two years. And so as soon as they start to kind of get a little momentum, the funding runs out. And then they need to go back to step one and make the case again. And then sometimes they don't get that funding. And so it just dies. Right. And so it's like that cyclical never being able to get ahead. Um, there's also, again, as I said earlier, the issue of capacity, but also having to reverse engineer the social determinants of health and structural problems. So, again, these issues around black community and health are grounded and intersect with so many different things, whether it be socioeconomic status, whether it be education, whether it be, you know, employment precarity, there's so many intersecting factors. And so the kinds of work that they're expected to do in so little time with transient um, ad hoc funding, um, they often did not have the capacity to do it because often they were doing this work off the side of their desk sometimes in a volunteer capacity, they're not receiving salaries doing this type of work. And so this is in addition to, you know, their day job, whatever that may be, in addition to childcare and whatever other challenges they may be facing in their life. And then lastly, symbolic anti-racism was something that came up a lot. Just to quickly define it, this is an a policy approach that gestures towards, you know, progress rather than actually doing the work of systemic change. And so often this was evidenced through, you know, tokenistic inclusion. One of our participants called it fluffy conversations. And often this, this approach was often quite unsafe because it was almost the getting your hopes up and then having them dashed, realizing that this is just, you know, a photo app. So what we re recognized in this work so far is that there is a tension existing within this space of the futility or the perceived futility of the work that they're doing, but then also juxtaposing that with hope. There's also this question and this existential question, it's an age-old question of, should we be trying to hold the system accountable or should we be self-determining? Or in other words, have the freedom to do the work as we want to do it. Next up is a presentation on deliberation as a method of citizen engagement. We actually did an episode on deliberation not long ago. We did, with Kim McGrail. But this project covers some different ground. Joanna Massey is a PhD student in political science at McMaster. Her presentation was called Engaging Deliberately, 
exploring deliberation in two Canadian health systems. And you know, basically what she found was that the reasons for choosing deliberation as a way to engage the public were not only different in the two health systems, but neither were aligned with some of the commonly understood ideals of deliberation. Right, so what are those ideals? Well, that was part of Joanna's presentation. She describes the ideals and then looks at the gaps between theory and practice. The theory goes that deliberation is an opportunity for free and equal citizens justify decisions in a process in which they give one another reasons that are mutually acceptable and generally accessible, but with the aim of reaching conclusions that are binding in the present on all citizens, but open to challenges in the future. There's a couple of things I want to draw out here. Firstly, that there's an element of learning uh, that citizens have an opportunity to learn about, to consider and discuss, and to reach conclusions that they deem to be in the public interest. There's also this piece about uh, reaching conclusions that are binding. It's usually used in uh, a way to inform policy, although not exclusively, although generally it's about informing policy. There's also been a growing use of deliberation uh, in the last 30 years or so, what the OECD has called a deliberative wave. These processes in real terms look like participatory budgeting, citizens' juries, deliberative polls, and uh, deliberative mini-publics. It's particularly useful in complex systems where there are conflicting public values, high levels of controversy, a need to combine expert and real-world knowledge, and low trust in government. And it's for these reasons that I actually think it's particularly good in healthcare. It focuses on informed decision-making. There's an emphasis on equitable participation. And it's binding, or in theory, it should be binding. Although there's a rich descriptive literature about the methods and internal dynamics of these processes, there remains relatively little literature on why these processes are chosen in the policymaking system. So my research questions were why policymakers choose deliberation as a method of engagement, and to what extent do policymakers actually consider these values of deliberation when they're making decisions to use deliberation in the policy process. So I used two cases, one in Nova Scotia and one in Algoma, Ontario. Both loosely use this definition of deliberation. Uh, one had community roundtable discussions and one had a citizens, what's termed here a citizens reference panel, it's a deliberative mini public uh, by another name. So in both cases, Organizers articulated that their decision-making processes were not actually directly related to the goals that we've, in the literature, understand deliberation to be. In Nova Scotia, organizers developed a roundtable model based on the advice uh, of their team to essentially mitigate the opportunities for disgruntled citizens to hijack the conversations and to maximize the opportunity for productive conversation. They also wanted to redevelop this relationship with citizens that's been worn down as a result of regional uh, policy changes. 
in Algoma, it was very much about this novelty, about doing something different, engaging citizens who wouldn't normally participate, and to host activities that could be a unifying factor among the members of the health team. My point here is really just to highlight that we can talk about the theories of engagement and theories of deliberation and the goals that we want to see. Actually, when it comes down to practice, it's not that those goals are not valuable, but ultimately, this gap between theory and reality is sometimes uh, quite, quite large. Our last presentation is by Genevieve Fuji-Johnson, a professor at Simon Fraser. Her talk is titled, The Epistemic Injustices of Public Engagement, When Nothing is Done to Meet the Demands of Nothing About Us Without Us. It's based on her collaboration with Carrie Porth, who is a sex worker rights activist, educator, and writer. Their work looks at the governance of sex work in Canadian and U.S. cities. And in this talk, Dr. Johnson discusses how ongoing stigma has led to sex worker activists and organizations being left out of various forms of civic engagement, particularly in policy areas which affect them directly. Right, and the part we're sharing here is a theoretical framing of that exclusion, along with some lessons learned. Here's Dr. Johnson. What I want to talk to you about today are forms of injustice uh, that can play out in public engagement. And I want to call attention to these injustices. One is ontological, and another type of injustice is epistemic, so that researchers and practitioners of public engagement can uh, minimize the risks of these transpiring uh, when members of the public come together to deliberate on matters of shared concern. I think that those who are most likely to experience these forms of injustice uh, are already marginalized, excluded, and or oppressed. Ideally, uh, forums of public engagement uh, accord with principles of inclusion, equality, mutuality, uh, and reason sharing, all toward reaching an agreement with which participants can basically agree. So that's the ideal. But because these forums take place within an unjust social context, they run the risk of not only replicating injustices, but also of reinforcing them. So the, the lessons that maybe we can think about uh, in the context of today's discussions, uh, I think are threefold. Uh, so forms of public engagement can be sites where injustices occur, especially against uh, racialized, uh, stigmatized, uh, and or uh, otherwise minoritized uh, peoples. Uh, so peoples with, for example, precarious migration status, access to precarious housing, uh, ability uh, differences, neurodiversity, and so on. Um, uh, the second lesson is that social ontologies matter in terms of how we treat people and how they are treated generally, uh, but also more specifically in the context of public engagement and collective deliberation. So they matter, in other words, in terms of realizing the normative principles central to the ideal of deliberative democracy. 
Finally, the third lesson uh, is that forms of epistemic injustice can be both obvious and not so obvious. And so this is really important. Um, and I think it's the not so obvious that's worth dwelling on, particularly those who have uh, the privilege of not experiencing the not so obvious forms of exclusion, marginalization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, these epistemic injustices can take the shape of outright exclusion from forms of public engagement, but they can also take the shape very sort of subtle discrediting or gaslighting of participants, dismissing their knowledge or ignoring them while privileging or preferentially treating other participants who lack actually the relevant knowledge uh, and relying on often debunked evidence or ideologically driven arguments. So lots of lessons to learn and build on as we continue to develop forms of public engagement. It was such a pleasure to hear those talks in person, especially after hearing Dr. Mishner's keynote. The conference overall had a strong critical through line, and the talks were so varied. Yep. And like all good conferences, there was so much to talk about. So we wanted to debrief afterwards and to hear more from researchers who think about and study public engagement. So we hosted a small group conversation. Mm-hmm. A very small group. And of course, we recorded it. It was you and me and Katie Booth, conference organizer and previous guest, and a new friend of the podcast, Alana Catapan. Do you have her profile handy? Uh, yes, I do. Um, so Alana is Canada Research Chair in the Politics of Reproduction and an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. She studies gendered inclusion in policymaking, identifying links between the state, the commercialization of the body, and reproductive labor. And she also directs the Politics of Reproduction Research Group at the University of Waterloo. Yeah, great to have her with us. So yes, a small group, but mighty. We put together some of the more interesting moments so you could listen in. And just to orient you to our voices, Alana speaks I'm first. Alana I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo, and I hold the Canada Research Then us. Then Katie joins in, talking about representativeness. The question of representativeness is sometimes a little uncomfortable. Like, they don't want to be seen as representative. Here's Alana starting us off, outlining some of her key takeaways from the morning sessions. I'm really interested in the division between what we think of as academic research about public engagement and the work of public engagement. And I think Dr. Michener did a really good job about, of talking about the work of public engagement that is our responsibility as community engaged or um, social justice oriented scholars. Not every social justice oriented scholar does this kind of work, but many do. Um, so I think that that was a really important theme, listening to community, making sure the ideas come from community on the live drawing that was there, the graphic art that was happening at the same time. I thought the most important thing I saw was that um, communities know what they need. And so thinking about community engagement as led by community, inspired by community and responding to community need 
is what really resonated for me, I think, at least in the keynote, but also in the panel that followed. I'll pick up on kind of what you're saying there. One thing that the term epistemic injustice came up a lot and these ideas about um, which sorts of knowledge are sort of real or can be used. And a theme I thought was really interesting or, or something that was relevant in each situation really felt like this idea of how do we when is something legitimately able to be used as knowledge, and I'll particularly use the policy context here, to then be translated into policy, and who decides that, and at which stage of the process does that happen? I was saying to Emily earlier that the term policy elites was something I hadn't really thought of before as an expression, and so now I'm thinking of kind of public elites, or patient elites, and policy elites talking to each other, and that's kind of how it's been, and it's very... I think this came up actually, that's kind of the easy thing, it's the simple way, it's like everyone's available, they're all socialized to collaborate and talk to each other, and it all feels like it's this very engaged kind of process. And meanwhile, there are people literally dying, screaming for resources, putting out fires, you know, organizing at the grassroots level who are just like not at the table. And so... Anyway, that's what's resonating for me and all of these, uh, you know, different communities that, that were discussed or represented this morning and thinking about the work that they're doing as an organized group and how not only is it policy elites getting in the way, <laughs> but it's public elites who have been doing this kind of engagement who, are, who then talk about, oh, we need to get, you know, a diverse group of people. That's going to fix it. And so it's the cherry-picked you know, people who kind of blend into those elite engagement spaces who are involved and invited. Dr. Michener really raised that in talking about sort of the, um, who becomes the idealized subject of the representative. But on the sort of flip side of that, I think about one of the communities that I work with who experience just a lot of marginality, homelessness and potential drug use. Many have like recently had a baby, there's just a lot going on. And some of those people are involved in our work, but many can't be. They just don't have the time, even if we gave them every resource we have, um, you know, if we paid support, which we try to do, um, there's just not an interest in, like there are other pressing needs in people's lives. And so finding a balance in that, I think is important because it has to be, in some cases, somebody who's a little further along or somebody who has more capacity, who isn't um, somebody who is fighting every day. Um, who's able to participate. Although sometimes we hear from people who say, I have to do this because I am fighting for my life every day. Yeah. And, and I, something that's come up definitely in our discussions previously around this idea of representation too, which is, you know, who is it then that represents a community? And, and is it better to have, you know, this, the advocacy model where there was someone who clearly you know, represented a group and this is who spoke for them and that's been very much especially in the sort of patient research and, and collaborative model sort of pushed against this idea of advocacy and it was like not supposed to be someone who belonged to something or had an agenda but at the same time then you end up with people who don't actually have any responsibility to a group or sense of being connected to that group who are then coming and often being taken as representative if there are a, a people in in a community or in a population that couldn't be at the table because of their own needs but then the person who inevitably can fit that mold but isn't technically representative of them becomes the voice it just becomes very tricky 
This is such a political science conversation because the question is like how representative is representative enough? And it's a big thorny question and one that in previous research that I've done with mostly patient advisors, the question of representativeness is sometimes a little uncomfortable. Like they're, they don't want to be seen as representing a community. And when, you know, because they don't feel authorized to be doing that representation. And so, like, I think there's a couple questions. First of all, what are the situations where individual lived experience is going to help meet the goals of, uh, of the public engagement, of that particular element of public engagement? And when do you really need to hear community voice and have something that, you know, um, in some way represents a set of experiences or a collective experience? And then, so first you discern when these two things might be most important, and then you have to figure out how to achieve them. And um, something that really stuck out for me from Dr. Michener's um, talk, and I think also um, Alpha and Rhonda mentioned it, is the necessity of long-term relationships with community organizations. I think that's so important. It's one that has come up in like other aspects of my job, like not my the research part of my job, but sort of the 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 service roles that I that I do in my department. Like if you want to be involved in the community, it's not it's not a one-off thing and it might not it might not be clear at the beginning what the outcome is going to be or you know how the relationship is going to be is going to evolve or what the researcher, academic, uh, quote-unquote, expert is going to end up getting out of it, right? It's probably more important that their contribution to the group be, be clear if, if the goal is to create relationships that will, you know, perhaps down the road allow for that person to be trusted to hear a representative voice or carry that to other spheres of it. So I'm, I'm of the view that I don't think that it's generally possible for a graduate student in a one or two year program to do meaningful community engaged work unless they're already part of that community or unless a project exists where someone can bring them in. Mm-hmm. I think to put you know community organizations on that timeline is unreasonable, although sometimes community engaged work moves so fast, like the opposite of academic work. But it's sort of opposite um, of what we're trying to do with grad students, which is teach them often, you know, how to build a research project, develop a question, develop all the methodologies um, that they want to do to carry forward in their life. That might not be what the community needs at that time or whatever, whoever we're talking about, the people who are seeking out the research. But it's certainly possible within the Canadian funding model to do this in some ways with graduate students. And I'm thinking particularly of SHRC's Partnership Engage program, which is a one-year funding project that involves one researcher and one community organization. And in those cases, the case where I've worked, it was the community that came to me with the question, you know, we need research on this. Can, can we go do this? Let's go get money. We got the money. We did the thing. A grad student was involved pretty much from the beginning. 
but it didn't align with her timeline and she did it as a research assistant on the side. So it, we could have done it. It would have been possible. It wasn't really possible in COVID, but it could have been possible. There are ways that this could happen, but it would have to be very ideal circumstances. How did they How did they know to find you to ask, to see if you were interested in their research question? I, I'm walking around all the time, just I feel like with a sign on my back, being like, this woman will do whatever you need. Um, so in that case, I had a student who had started um, an organization that serves people with HIV and AIDS in Saskatoon. She took one look at me and was like, let's do this. And so we did that um, with um, the research assistants sort of at the helm of helping us design this project, who, somebody who has just been working in HIV and AIDS stuff in Saskatoon for a long time. So that really came together, but didn't even follow the, the timelines. So it was just serendipity that, that your yeah. interest and her needs kind of com- like came together to at least formulate like a discussion point of whether you could do something. Yeah, in that case, she just like came up to me after class and was like, we will be working together. I see. (laughs) But in other cases, you know, I've been brought into projects where community has approached another academic who might not know what quite how to design a project or speak to policymakers. Um, But my general policy with these things are, are that I will, I serve at the interest of the community. So I'm not typically consulting. It usually comes the other way. And they've already, they already have a question or already have something in mind. Mm -hmm. And if I can, yeah, just jump jump in here. I think that um, that speaks to the kind of researcher that Alana is, and that that um, like avail- availability to the community is not necessarily the norm, and is also not necessarily rewarded. Yeah. I'm in a very privileged position with my chair now, especially to be able to make these kinds of decisions that I don't think is true of a lot of people. For sure. Yeah, I mean, just on the break, I was talking to another uh, another researcher who does, you know, intensely community involved research. It's essential to the kind of research that they do. Um, and I mean, I'll uh, I'll quote them without identifying them, but they were they were told, uh, you know, pre tenure. Oh, you know, all this participatory research community engagement that you do is just the the cherry on top but like do everything else um i mean that person is a superstar in all aspects of their work and so they did everything else plus the so-called cherry on top but when dr Mishner was talking about like the texts at apm and the you know, the are you going to the community meeting or are you going to like go home and have dinner with your family tonight? Um, I, it, it, I think it really emphasizes the fact that um, the, the type of work is not necessarily sustainable if there is not some sort of institutional support. That means things like real actual recognition in the in the ways that matter for academics um which is like recognition on par with peer-reviewed research contributions um it means uh the amount of funding given and the timelines for funding um you know how much longer do you need if you want to uh, train community members to do the research with you, you know, to 
conduct interviews to, uh, to help you facilitate focus groups. And so um, I think there is more talk in the university about recognizing the importance of community engagement and community engaged research, but, um, but it, it's, not a, it's not a rhetorical problem, it's a, it's a practical problem. And I, I think the, the practicalities of that have not, we have not yet seen enough change. We had an interview with um, another researcher, Lori Ross, um, a few mm, weeks yeah. ago, a, a few weeks, ago. several episodes ago. Yeah. But she was expressing these exact frustrations mm-hmm. with institutional constraints around doing community-engaged research. And I think she, not to put words in her mouth, but maybe I'll just say it this way, um, I came away from several conversations feeling like frustrated academics wonder to themselves is this even a place where we can do the kind of work that we want to do? So it makes me wonder, like, can you imagine like an alternate universe where there is an entirely different structure set up yeah. for this kind of research for communities where there's even like a clearinghouse where you match researchers with community and it's not in the academic institution? We could do it in the academic institution. Like we're, as part of the work I'm currently doing, I keep having conversations about how do we create a list of available researchers in my field on reproduction for community, like saying what our capacity is, do we have grad students right now, what are the skills, do they need us, what do they need us for, how can we create projects with them and and use um, grant money to do it. Uh, There's all kinds of ways we could be doing this so much better and there are like Indigenous scholars in particular have been leading the way in fighting for changes to tenure standards to recognize the like length of time it takes to do work, build relationships, um, go through research ethics, all of that when you're engaged in community-based projects, especially for Indigenous scholars who are also getting sort of research approval from communities that they're either a part of or not a part of. Um, and so there are yeah, fights that other people have been engaged in to make this happen so much better within the context of the university. And I was very fortunate to be at the University of Saskatchewan, where many of my Indigenous colleagues were doing that work. But, you know, there's also significant constraints. I think about the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council's requirements for collaborators, that you can't pay somebody who's a collaborator on your grant unless they're doing very specific work. So if they are somebody who is experiencing precarity, but is also bringing so much to your project, you can't recognize them in a formal way that they can put on their CV, that they can take forward and also pay them. It's troublesome. And, and Lori's, um, this, this discussion we had with Lori, very <laughs> she much the same problem. <laughs> well, she talked also like the whole sort of premise of it was once you do then hire them on or start paying them, the connection to the institution itself and what that means and the layers of that, what it means for the peers. Um, it was just, she did a very reflective, like interesting, um, where they where they had these sorts of discussions openly during the, the process and kind of in the discussion we had with her, the conclusions around it feeling like to do, to meet the ideals of mm-hmm. it was peer-led research in this mm-hmm. case was not possible within the institution. like to meet the ideals that had been laid out for that that research. And I think that's the other part that I often come up against is it would be one thing if we wanted to sort of do good work and help and, and have these things. But when we set up ideals of like equal power and like sharing and partnerships and um, authenticity and all of these words, I just really think it does set up people for harm or at least 
being let down because by the structures that are there, we have to follow certain sets of rules, which then end up like tokenizing to an extent if the person has been promised partnership or empowerment or that we will be collaborating together in this co-design when the whole structure actually doesn't work that way. And I so, so I genuinely also think it's about having more realism in what we describe is actually going on. So like Maybe I, you two are the clearinghouse. <laughs> like I feel like you have all the knowledge about the concerns. We just talk to a lot of intelligent people. <laughs> That's the good thing about our job is that we just get to talk to all these people. Like we did a great couple of episodes with Alpha and Rhonda. Um, and that was really pivotal for me to hear more about, you know, from a, it was still from an academic standpoint, but for them as black researchers talking about issues of concern to black communities broadly, it made me start to think about like these, again, this, you know, the elite, elite policymakers, elite researchers, elite public members, it all vibrates at a very different level than the community stuff, all the community efforts and initiatives and things like that. And it just, it creates tension in me thinking about what do we care to talk about ongoing, you know what I mean? Because it's it's like this divide that, I mean, you guys must feel it in this kind of insurmountable way, but from where we sit, like you said, as the sort of clearinghouse or something, but we hear this this kaleidoscope of views and part of me thinks, I wonder if some of this just needs to be burned down. Is there like, I think that there's injustice in funding research that never reaches anybody or makes a change in the world. And so how can we capture, you know, the funding on offer, the supports on offer, the resources at the university, the considerable resources and prestige of the university and repurpose it? I keep thinking in this conversation too about the like language of evidence-based policymaking that's extremely prominent in the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. And like, of course we should make decisions based on evidence, no one is suggesting otherwise. But that that is always, it seems, not always, often two things at once. One is that there is sort of quantitative or qualitative evidence that comes through peer-reviewed academic research or from some other sort of seemingly like legitimated um, space, somewhere that is seen as like a respected research place, but also has to be accompanied by, this, by stories, right? That the stories or narratives of people have to occur in tandem with that research in order to, to make evidence-based policy change. And so I think of us as facilitating like getting both of those things across at once, making them happen together, I guess, for policymakers. I don't know. I can um, you clarify? I just want to cl- can you clarify when you say we need stories, like we because it only makes it palatable for yeah, politicians like, to kind of be, like we've had this discussion before. Like you need to hear real people saying their story because it sells it or it legitimizes both, it or what? both. Like that, uh, everybody is likely to be more. engaged, moved, supportive of something when they hear somebody's real experience. I think we are like, that's a part of humanity that when you hear somebody's real experience of something, it's more moving and memorable. But that that is not always sufficient to make policy change, that you need the stats are often in the uh, emerge often in when my students are writing these writing op-eds or what have you. Um, But other kinds of evidence, but supported through academic institutions or, you know, a, a think tank that has to sort of sit alongside. Yeah. Sorry, I know I was going to say we're just interested. Some of the stuff we looked at around representation, like what are we asking those stories to do is something Mm -hmm. that's kind of come up. Is it to move 
someone like a piece of art kind of does or is it to represent something or like a prototypical patient or so I'm, I'm sort of curious prototypical patient is such an interesting question too because that comes up the patient voice so often when I'm writing a report from research that might include narratives might also include sort of research that I've done I will often get the question whether I can provide with the executive summary an example of someone's story that would be representative of everybody. And my answer to that is like, absolutely not. Here's a link to a newspaper story of someone who has done a journalistic intervention on this. Is there anything anybody feels like, like, uh, did this feel like a good discussion? Would you like to say anything more to just get it out there? I sort of felt cathartic. Like I have a lot of complaints and also like, wonderful things to say about my experiences in community-engaged research, which I increasingly is a bigger and bigger part of my research agenda because I find it to be the most rewarding and also the most pressing. It's um, it's a nice forum, I suppose, to think out loud and to like talk to people who kind of get the sphere that you're talking mm-hmm. about. And it occurs to me to ask, like, do you not have forums where these conversations, like where there's a critical look at the community-engaged piece of like, and the researcher's role in it. I mean, I assume there is, but do you? T- is are these like cool, like is much cooler conversations? Or, that's a community of people that I engage with about my work. But because each of our areas and communities is so specialized, you're trying to build your knowledge and capacity of your methodology, work with your community, also the specific area you're working in. So in my case, generally reproduction. All of those things, like, can you get more to more conferences? You know, can you have more workshops? So I'm very excited to be here today to be able to have these conversations. But it's not, it's like just, a, it's another area of, of well, like-minded people. It's more subject One matter. thing I hear from a lot of researchers that I work with or consult with is that there's not a lot of space because you have to focus so much on selling what you're doing because you're writing grants for it or you're trying to support it or you're trying to. So that, that critical element is certainly not, it's not like almost feasible to then also have the time to do that. Like so much of the effort, and I particularly hear this from patient-oriented research because- because You're not going to get this from the social sciences and humanities. You said million dollar budgets. Like we don't have that. We don't get postdocs anymore. Yeah. And like, but, but, and if you are talking about it, you're certainly not talking about it and like, why shouldn't we be doing this? Like, (laughs) what is wrong with what we're doing here? It's like, no, that, that doesn't usually- I just mean, well, yeah, like, there are definitely things wrong with what we're doing. But. Oh, no, there are. I just mean you don't probably, because so much of your time has to be spent, like, applying for the grant mm-hmm. or doing the thing to promote it or supporting it, having that as well, I'm assuming, in the limited time of human beings. Yeah. yeah, I think where we experience this, too, is in is in this patient engagement yeah. sphere where patients feel like they finally have a voice to bring into spaces and they're finally being invited in they're f- and they don't you know there's not a lot of critical reflection they're just busy doing the work and we sometimes get critis- critiqued <laughs> or we we hear the sort of rumbles of like well what are those two complaining yeah. about and because it's um you know they they feel partly grateful for the opportunities at being heard and for having budgets for being paid sometimes mm-hmm. to facilitate engage patient type things so I wonder if there's a parallel to some extent with social scientists or even health researchers who are feeling that there is at least some support or a community building for this kind of work. And so maybe there's, I, 
I guess I'll ask, is there, is, do you feel somewhat self-censored or do you feel like there's just, you can't really complain out loud about it in any real way? I, just, I think like, I don't know, I would complain about it to you, but there's not a lot of people in our mm. discipline at least mm. who are doing this kind of work. And so my complaints about, and also if you have access to health re- research money, which I do and I, which I think is funding this conference, that's a lot more money than, I don't know, is it? It's an internal grant. It's an internal grant, yeah. Um, there's not a lot money in the social sciences and humanities, and so when you're complaining about your the grant that you're on that does have many postdocs, research administrators, it is not, perhaps, I don't try this, but I imagine it wouldn't be well heard by my colleagues who are or fighting for $50,000 mm-hmm. grants mm-hmm. in the social sciences and humanities. And so there are people with whom I think I have these conversations, certainly with my health colleagues, but um, maybe not at like my home. The most kind of like helpful and generative uh, opportunities I have ever had to talk about this stuff is with the research team that I work with here. We, uh, we've been meeting pretty much every two weeks since the very beginning of the pandemic. And those like, aside from, I'm very proud of the work that the team is producing, but a lot of the payoff for me has been going to these meetings and talking through these ideas with, you know, with researchers like Julia, who have, you know, a distinguished career doing this with, you know, people who are closer to my stage and like newer to the space. And then with a just absolutely brilliant set of students, both graduate and undergraduate and that has given me so many new ideas about the kind of work that I want to do and, you know, new ideas about the questions I want to ask that, um, yeah, I wish everybody had a team like this. I'm thinking about this idea of complaint too and, and like not talking about my colleagues in part because of money or because like, you know, I have like a lot of students, they might not have a lot of students because I can fund more with the health cash. Mm-hmm. It is also the fundamental project of community-engaged research disrupts the idea of like university profs as uh, knowledge holders, as the sort of prestigious, mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. people who have knowledge. And there are a lot of professors, certainly, that are very invested in that, right, and, and having a prestigious role as a knowledge keeper of society. And to say, you know, you hold one kind of knowledge that is often useless and sometimes good, um, but you need to talk to a whole lot of other people, I think could really um, contest how people feel about their role in the university. And so for me, you know, I, again, think of my role as redistributive and like, I don't, I don't feel about it that way. Um, but I think many people might, and that might really like challenge their identity. They, they probably think what I do is not legitimate forms of knowledge because what they do is very legitimate. We come full circle to legitimacy, Katie. So exciting. So to answer the first question, that's the thing. I was just going to say, I do kind of think, even with our podcast episodes this season, we Thanks to the team at the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project at McMaster, who put on the conference, provided the audio, and allowed us to host and record our conversation. The voices you heard in this episode include Rhonda C. George, Joanna Massey, Genevieve Fuji-Johnson, Katie Booth, and Alana Catapan. Please check the show notes for links and for more information. Matters of Engagement is written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Engel. If you have feedback, ideas, 
or just want to say hello, please get in touch through our website at mattersofengagement.com. This series is supported by the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project, which promotes research, critical reflection, and dialogue about engagement issues that have a health and health policy focus. Learn more about this Future of Canada project at engagementinhealthpolicy.ca.